This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 555 for April 19th, 2017. Hello and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast, a podcast that tries to remind you that you can't escape the past, no matter how much you try. We're all a result of the legacies of the past. Ah! And with that happy news, um, let me introduce Susie Oaks, the executive editor of Macworld. Hi, Susie. How are you? Hey, Glenn. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And I failed to introduce myself. Uh, I'm Glenn Fleischman. I am Glenn a... Fleischman, everybody. Yeah. Woo! So, I'd love to get that kind of fanfare when I when I wake up in the morning. Uh, I'm a senior contributor at Macworld and also an old curmudgeon. Um, so I thought I'd start this <laughs> week with blasts from the past. Susie, yesterday I spent a few hours with a, uh, with a book binder because I'm doing a letterpress book, as previously disclosed. And uh, was meeting with someone because uh, bookbinding is like a black art. Like it's, um, uh, I was trained as a, a typesetter. I did a lot of handwork, a lot of design work, um, letterpress in the past, and worked with offset. And like, there's a line between the design and even printing part of things, and then bookbinding, which is this whole mystical field. So that was that was fun. Look at paper and stitching and things like that. But but they reminded me of another blast from the past um, that happened recently, which is uh, Steve Wozniak. Uh, had never met Paul Allen. Can you believe Whoa. that? I know. I was I was shocked. I, I figured that they may- were in that movie together, Pirates That's of right. Silicon Valley. Apparently, yeah. Well, well uh, with um, uh, such a good it, movie, it was John um, DiMaggio who plays uh, does the voice of the robot Bender of Futurama was playing Steve Ballmer, which I'd forgotten. That's, Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's really good. Yeah, and um, anyway, so yeah, so they're in that movie together, uh, but not them. And then. Um, uh, at, recently at the Living Computers, um, I forget what they call it, not museum, but uh, a lab or something, which is an incredible – I have I like felt about this before? It's, no. There, there are different computer history museums around uh, the U.S. and around the world. There's a good one in Boston. There's one – there's uh, stuff in the Bay Area. Um, this is Paul Allen's baby in uh, Seattle. It's right near – like practically across the street from the Starbucks headquarters, so kind of perfect in uh, – the neighborhood we call Soto, south of the Kingdom or south of the Dome, even though the Kingdom was torn down 15 years ago, we still call it Soto because that's again blast from the past. Uh, living Computer, um, I think it's LivingComputers.org or something. Uh, I went there the other day and it was um, I was practically in tears because it had so many parts of my childhood. I walk in the door and they have a 6502 processor based motherboard hanging on the wall like right as you walk in i'm there with my older son i'm like that's the computer i own and that's it. <laughs> it was so great. it's like if i went somewhere and they had the first nintendo the atari 2600 <sighs> and like the um lego or the, the 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 jenner death star um thing with the star wars action figures they, they had yes. all that in one room and you i would just start started to weep weeping openly. they have some of the atari stuff too they have a room upstairs um so it's it's they have i uh, had so many atari 2600 games once everyone started unloading them at their garage sale oh yeah yeah so they I would have go to a, every garage sale in town and just buy them all they have one of those set up they have a fake living room upstairs with a minecraft like a Wii and a minecraft thing set up and yeah and like old shag carpeting and then <gasps> they have a little old tv Wood paneling on the wall i think so i forget it's not that elaborate. they have a little old tv on a little tv cart with a cartridge with the cartridge rack the old style cartridge rack full of and you can play it so this museum is very hands-on you can go that's and, really cool and touch everything they have a mainframe room full of mainframes that are running like old mainframes they have every kind of computer memory from the original so like hand sewn memory that was it's hilarious a little fabric of memory um to wow. the latest stuff and uh uh, so it's a great place. So there was an event. So Paul Allen often has events there. It's his place. Um, and it's, again, really wonderful. The hands-on part is great because you can touch computers of every era and play games on computers of every era uh, as well. And uh, so he and Wozniak met at a, an event they did there. And um, I just thought that was hilarious. I was thinking they're sort of the two oddballs in a really positive way of the of that revolution. Like everyone remembers. I mean, people all know their names alongside Bill Gates and Steve Jobs, we think of Bill Gates and Steve Jobs as the movers and maybe Steve Ballmer as like the number two mover, like Tim Cook. You think of – I mean, Ballmer was there, of course, very early. But you don't necessarily think of um, – um, oh, I'm sorry. I said John DiMaggio played Steve Ballmer, not Paul Allen in that movie, by the way, just so people don't write in. I know. Uh, but no, Paul, you, said, you said Steve Ballmer. Did I say – oh, I'm sorry. So yeah. Paul – but Paul Allen um, – Paul Allen – was and remains a brilliant man ahead of his time. He's kind of a weirdo, like we all are in the computer industry, but he invested a lot of stuff for years. There was a book called The Accidental Zillionaire that I reviewed uh, 
want to say 15 years ago, um, in which a reporter went through and looked at basically all of his failed investments, all of the things he did wrong. And what was funny is that book came out right at the moment that everything he put his hands on turned to gold because he was a man 10 years ahead of his time. And then his time caught up. And so he started putting money into things that, that aligned with the current ability for technology to deliver. So he was an early satellite TV investor, an early, um, Oh gosh, he invested in an early uh, municipal Wi-Fi style system that was very low speed, but was all over the U- U.S. briefly. And anyway, so Paul is a super interesting guy. And Wozniak's done all these interesting creative things and music festivals, and educational work and outreach. And I just would think, God, wouldn't they have bumped into each other? And no, it's the first time they ever met. And it's kind of cool. And they're at a point with their lives, obviously, where they can just kind of enjoy like, hey, you're that guy. Yeah, hey, what's going on? Uh, wish I'd been there just to see that because that would have been cool. But uh, they met. Um, one more blast from the past, if you don't mind. Do you mind? Okay. All right. One you're, more. I mean, you're on a roll. Go for it. So uh, also <laughs> coming up at the Living Computer Museum, they're going to be doing two screenings of a movie I saw the world premiere of the other night. And I expect listeners to this podcast will find this interesting because I know that Macworld has always had a graphic designer audience. You know, from the early days, yes. a lot of early Mac users were desperate graphic designers trying to figure out how to use these bloody machines to get the work done that they used to get done much more easily with paste up. Gosh darn it. And now they're forced to use this DTP stuff. Movie called Graphic Means, M-E-A-N-S, uh, just came out from a um, graphic design uh, professor from Portland who had never made a movie before got obsessed after finding some old design manuals with this whole issue of the transition between the metal era of design where everything came out of hot metal machines or was handset and um, paste up. They sh- she had these wonderful scenes in the movie of, of quote unquote paste up where the editor is sitting there with like typesetters and other people pulling, you know, huge pieces of metal in and out of the front page as they compose the front page. Right. And I'd never seen footage of that before. So that was one era. And then we have our beautiful, clean, crisp digital era era where I do everything on the machine. I hit a button and it always comes out exactly the way I want every time. Ha ha ha. Of course it does. Uh, but, you know, if I need to print something, I hit a button, I can get a book made print on demand. I can go to offset. I can go to my laser printer. I can post the web. Like we're fully into this all digital era. And so the movie is about the transition of photo typesetting and paste up and all this stuff where you, did you ever work with hot wax? Is that after your time? Uh, yes, that so, is after my time. So there is this whole era, which I think listeners will remember because I think a lot of you are – um, I'm guessing that a lot of the listeners' podcasts are between the ages of 35 and 60. Not if you are. Raise your hand if you are one. And you probably worked in some field in which you had to work adjacent to design based on all of my experience with Macworld readers. So we have younger readers and we have readers who are never involved. But everyone probably – I expect a lot of you are nodding knowingly. So you will love this film because it is a uh, – and so for first-time filmmaker, also fantastic like really solid. You would never know this was her first documentary. It's just great. Um, but it's about a period of time that do, that's gone and will never need to come back because it was a transition period. It was the period between like, in like every step of the way it, computers were involved, but first it was optical because you couldn't, you know, produce type at enough resolution and then digital is creeping more and more into the production of type. And then finally you go to all digital laser controlled or inkjet controlled output and that's it and so there's no reason someone asked her um she was at the opening and someone said has anyone got this equipment running somewhere and she said no because nobody really wants to use it it's it's not obsolete it was more like um the missing link so when people trace the history of of graphic design and typesetting and book production and and all of that this period just it only existed because there was no other way to get from one end to the other and so there's not a per se nostalgia for it. So anyway, great film. There's going to be a couple screenings if you're in the Seattle area um, at the Living Computer Museum. If you're elsewhere in the country, you can go to their website, which is, as they're called, Graphic Means, graphic, M-E-A-N-S.com. And there's other screenings coming. And if you have a company that wants to arrange one, I have no financial connection to this movie, just so you know, uh, but they will do, uh, they may arrange screenings and then they'll be releasing uh, digital streaming and DVDs in the near future. Um, so love it. Cool. Susie, here's a funny thing. It was a Kickstarter funded uh, that funded some of the production costs. And Adobe, uh, Adobe's Typekit group uh, did a nice uh, uh, reception, helped underwrite it as well. No, oh, nice. Which is nice, yeah. But the, uh, <laughs> the funny part is Kickstarter project delivered on time. 
Well, that happens a lot. I mean, it's really good for that kind of thing. No, but a movie is so hard. First time movie maker. And she not only. A friend of mine did a movie and he found a different kind of crowd, uh, a crowdfunding site that actually let him like break down his budget. And he'd even said like, okay, I need this much to rent like this kind of camera. So you could chip in on that. Or if you had that kind of camera, you could loan it to him. Because I mean, they need things like he needed things like folding tables, a van, like he needed just so much stuff. And he had like done, he'd worked on other people's movies. So he knew how it was done. He just hadn't like launched his own. That is great. that was really cool how they it was like it was like you know those honeymoon funds where you can pay for someone's like we want to take a a horseback ride or a couple's massage and you can like pay for a little activity it was like that but for making a movie i can't remember what it was called i should google Uh, it was really good there are some things like that for a product manufacturer too i think it's a crowd supply um still out there as a viable kickstarter competitor where they uh you you kind of do more of a budgeting process with them like they don't approve your project they're not saying whether it's viable or not but they help you do a reality check and then some of the money is phased in and you could only sell – you have to kind of set a cap on what you sell. And after you hit that point, it switches to a pre-order phase with staggered delivery dates. So you can't say, um, uh, we'll deliver everything in uh, July 2018 and you suddenly get a million orders and it's – you know you're into 2020. You have to say like we can deliver X units by this date. So it's almost like an early bird thing and then – so we're seeing more models of that. But I just – I do – I'm glad to hear about your friend and I was glad to see a movie that, especially with all the challenges a filmmaker, especially the first time out faces, made a terrific film, greatly informative Warmed my heart. Now I can show my children what I did. There is literally no good, there's no good documentation. <laughs> that's, that's, of that. that's actually, yeah, that's important. Yeah. That's uh, anybody who, uh, who bought any of the Peach Pit Press books over you know many years that that was a, a, one of the biggest uh, presses. I did a lot of those books or did a number of books in that, those, uh, for that press. And um, we used all these techniques and I worked in a printing plant. And anyway, my nostalgia. But let's fast forward to the future. We're not even going to stop on April 19th. Susie, set the Wayback Machine to uh, sometime in October 2017. And um, we're going to talk about briefly uh, Mark Ehrman. Who we're going to be... spring forward, if you will. Ooh, I'm going to go change my clocks before it's too late. I have a, I have a great technology problem in my house. Is I have two clocks that have the wrong built-in daylight savings time thing from before Congress's change. So twice a year, we have three different times. I walked through a room and thought I was a time lord because it was one clock set an hour early and one set an hour late. Uh, so, uh, but we're we're fast forwarding to the iPhone eight advanced word. So, Mark Ehrman, who uh, uh, legendarily uh, a very young man who has very good sources in Apple, worked at nine five Mac, is at Bloomberg now, and he kind of did a uh, I want to say a combination of summary, but also confirmation from his sources of a lot of uh, I- iPhone eight features, including uh, OLED organic LED um, uh, screen elements for brightness. Uh, all glass front, slightly curved, but not very curved glass because apparently it's hard to get the yield for the very curved kind. They're buying all the panels from Samsung. So a lot of specific details. Uh, it was around- three models of phone and one would have OLED and the other two would be um, uh, LCD still. So, uh, right, so the, that the- kind of that kind of um, foreshadows like a, maybe like an iPhone Pro or just some kind of like an iPhone edition, some kind of anniversary special edition that's going to be expensive and that jives with other roommates i mean other uh, rumors that we've been hearing <laughs> um, there was one that was like oh maybe it'll cost a thousand dollars which kind of gave me flashbacks to the pre-ipad days where oh, they yeah, were floating yeah. all these super high yeah. prices for this this mythical like apple tablet that was coming and a thousand dollars that what if it's a thousand dollars oh my god will anyone buy it for a thousand dollars and then it was 500 so Maybe it'll be like that, but I mean, a thousand dollars for a phone isn't that crazy now because if now that we're paying for them without subsidies, they are. We found out that they're they're quite expensive. So, so yeah, the 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 OLED on the on the high end one is cool, but then I'm glad that um you know that his his sources say that they're going to keep another one around because um. Because that way they won't all be super expensive. So we'll have and like I'm a, sure the OLED, the whole line will be OLED eventually. But this is kind of like they're going to start the transition with a higher end phone. So as expected, we'll have like an iPhone 7s. That's just a uh, you know a, a talk. So maybe some new features, better camera. Who knows what um, on that for uh, the regular size phone, the six or the 5.5 inch phone. Is that what it is now? I remember. But that, they've had the same case for three years now, and he even says like the same case for three years, yeah. and the the. 
you know, the third year, the sales declined. So I wonder if they would do, you know, a new design for everything, but then Maybe. just like one that has like higher end materials. So like an Apple Watch edition kind of thing where like you're, you're having the same feature set across all of them, but one is just really luxe. My prediction is that they don't do that. My prediction is that the 7S and the 7S Plus are essentially the same form or identical form could factors be, could be, with, yeah. with new innards, with some upgraded stuff like, mm-hmm. you know, better camera, better processor, better whatever, as they do. And the iPhone 8 becomes the new form factor. So then you wind up with the classic iPhone SE style, which harkens back and is sold well. You wind up with the next size phone and then the phone of the big phone with two cameras and then the iPhone eight, which then becomes in the next year becomes like, you know, you get two models of that or something like that. That becomes uh, in 2018 becomes the new phone style, but I doubt they're going to do three different phone upgrades in this, uh, three different phone form factors in the same year. I think it's all too much to manage yeah. um, given the scale of operations. And it makes sense. I mean, so do it's, you think the special edition phone only comes in one size? Yeah, I suspect so. Oh, I I bet it's one phone. I bet it's one phone. Yeah, Um, I think so. That's what... And it's going to be special. And they could charge. Can you imagine if it had 128 gigs or even 256 gigs of storage, probably 128, and a ton of great specs, and they charge $9.99 for it in maybe one top configuration, and that's it. You know? And that's a possibility. Apple's done things like that before, and you're right. It makes it special. They're like, we put everything we can get into this, so we're not going to have a 32-gig version that we don't think is as good or whatever that's $8.99 or $7.99. We're going all in, and it's, you know, made of unicorn metal. It's a Mm -hmm. special kind of unicorn, aluminum unicorn we melted down for it. So another thing he talks about is uh, the fingerprint sensor. They wanted it to be just part of the screen, um, which would be technically challenging. Um, so it, he says it's currently unclear that the feature will make it into the final product. Um, you and I were talking before the podcast how like the feature set should be pretty set by now. Yeah. But um, if they're having technical difficulties, um, that could push back the launch or they could say, you know what, we're going to save it for next time. Um, we saw a rumor yesterday from a different source that said um, maybe they would scratch like t- they take Touch ID out of this phone, which seems like a step back since Apple mm. Pay relies on it. I wouldn't, you know, they, they have to like take Touch figure ID out, out a way to do like you know eyeball scanning or something. Yeah, they can't take Touch ID out, right? Or like, or they could move it to the back, which is what <laughs> Samsung no, did. No, don't move it to the back. I don't want it in the back. I mean, then it would be interesting. I think they would get laughed out of the room because it's what Samsung. Samsung did. And um, just to bring Samsung into it a little more, um, one of my best friends, Flo Ion, um, writes for Android Central, and she just published um, her Samsung Galaxy S8 review. They actually published it on iMore because there was a different writer at Android Central who wrote like the real technical, like deep dive nerd focused review for Android Central and then they had Flow write the court kind of more experiential review um for and and they they published it on iMork and Flow actually uses a Mac day to day so she's not as far from the iMore um crowd as you would think. Right. But anyway, it's a great review and but they she talks about the the iPhones the the sensor being on the back. A lot of people who have used them say it's pretty good. This one seems a little weird on the S8 because they put it really close to the camera. You know how their camera is centered. Mm-hmm. So I, I just asked her in Slack I was like, do you keep getting fingerprints on your camera lens by mistake? Because you're like, you know, where do I put my finger on this thing? So, yeah, I don't know. I think they would get just laughed at if they did that, even though it might be like a good solution <laughs> for what they want to do. Like it might actually I, like. But oh, I'm, I'm sorry. The other oh, yeah. thing about the S8 is that it has a false button in the front. She says that like you don't even see it, but there's like a haptic sensor where you can have like there is. There's like a fake button in the front, so, oh, so check it does out have, check out flows. Okay. Yeah, yeah, and and you can adjust like how much it buzzes and stuff. So I don't know if like people really noticed that. I wasn't really following the the Galaxy S8 news until until I read this in Flow's review. So check that out. It's on iMore. Um, but Flow Ion did a really really good job, and she's just a lovely person. She is fully uh, endorsed. Um, I'm just picturing iPhone cases with like a peekaboo cutout on the back for the for the. Touch ID yep, sensor. Yeah, uh, cases it would ruin. Uh, and, well, I, they're talking about the 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 camera might be like stacked up and down no, instead of horizontally. Uh, like it's it's gonna the cases are gonna be all messed up. I I hate the idea, and Apple could do it. Who knows? I mean, my my wife was trying to use the Apple Siri remote the other day, and she's like, "Who?" You know, it's like, "What? I can't." What? And I'm like, "I know, I know." Somehow, Johnny Ive designed like these things that are the best thing ever designed in the history of industrial design. 
consumer Until you need to use it. And then the Siri remote. Like, how did the same mind produce these two things? <laughs> so I'm hoping we don't see more. I don't want to see a Siri remote influence on an Apple iPhone 8. That's what I say. Um, but speaking of design decisions. So that, anyway, so check that article out at Bloomberg also. Uh, we got a link in the show notes. Um, yes. If you want to get the full thing, we have a roundup at Macworld.com. Uh, we're continuing. Uh, Caitlin, uh, Caitlin McGarry and uh, Oscar, I forget who else, Oscar Raimundo is. Uh, Oscar Raimundo. Raimundo is, uh, they're constantly updating our iPhone 8, like uh, rumors and predictions article so you can go to macworld.com and uh, we keep pushing every time a new there. rumor hits we put it on the top saying what's the latest and and then every rumor we also handicap yeah. so there was one yesterday where we were like oh that's not gonna happen i think it was the putting the sensor on the back we were like that's probably not gonna happen but rumors out there so we'll add it to the roundup and then say like you know if we think it's plausible or not right. iphone 8 comes with side of spaghetti probably not happening what if they put it in the sides so it was like the way you gripped it, but then the holding it wrong. What thing if you had to kiss again. the phone and it read the blood vessels in your lips? <laughs> that would be. What if it just right. felt your vibes, man? Like your aura, you know? Well, you know. What if ha- it could tell it was you from your unique bacteria profile from your skin? You have to swallow it or something or spit on it? You have to spit it on it. It just felt like your, your disgusting germ profile because everyone touch. is just being followed by their own bacteria oh, wait, cloud. Saliva ID. There we go. <laughs> yes. Does yeah, they need come, to have a funny name for it. Does not come with a side of spaghetti. Uh, a very touching commercial. <laughs> kiss your phone. <laughs> FaceTime a whole new thing. Um, you had to kiss you your phone. Your phone is disgusting, and now we're going to use that to oh, identify geez, you. Your personal if someone else picks up your phone, they're like, ew, you're not. Oh, it's going to be like a uh, germ profile. I, I don't know if this is true or not. I have to go to Snopes to find out. But the idea that there's traces of cocaine in every $20 bill in America um, that used to be a I've, rumor. I've heard that. Yeah, that's I don't know like if it's an true. Old urban I don't know if it's true. We're gonna do real time fact checking. Um, but the uh, the thing I was thinking is like every iPhone would wind up with like everyone's you know biome on it to be tracked later. Yeah. Um, Snopes says what is wow, the result? CNN top true. result: ninety percent of U.S. bills carry traces of cocaine. <laughs> uh, it's so it's not. Yeah, that's um, don't do drugs, kids. Stay in school. Snopes even says it uh, seems unlikely to us, but in fact it is. It's true. It's rather, it's just cocaine in powdered form is very fine. So very, very fine amounts of things. Um, not everyone is rolling up bills. There's a, a joke in The Good Place, a show I really like, in which they uh, someone's snorting something. And so you're snorting, co- you know, no thanks, I don't like it. cocaine. And said, no, no, we're not snorting cocaine. We're snorting time. Like You're snorting the notion of time? According to CNN, they get contaminated inside currency counting machines at the bank. Ah, bum, bum, bum. Because, you know, they're shuffling them all around. Yeah, yeah. And they're There's just cocaine, just cocaine is flying. flying around, and it's like a money party. They're oh, just making it rain why, inside the bank. <laughs> this is why bank tellers can be so surly. They're just like and cocaine it, infused. it binds to the green dye. Whoa. See? What if we change the, the color of our money so We're, that it wouldn't be so attracting so to cocaine? If you need a fix, you just lick a lot of bills. That's the. This uh, is a great podcast. Oh, my God. So moving ahead, let's move ahead. <laughs> I'm going to link this up to the show notes. Please do. Well, we got to make sure we're dispelling rumors. We don't want to have any fake news in this podcast. And we had, and that was a true fact that we came up with. Uh, Mark Arment, uh, my former uh, quasi-boss and um, host of the All uh, – sorry, the Accidental Tech Podcast, ATP. Uh, very fine podcast, especially if you're in the developer side or you're trying to understand uh, development. They're very fun, the three hosts. and But they talk at great depth about things um, from their you know multi-decade experience in uh, – in development and um, thinking about how software and hardware works. And so it's great. Really good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, So if you're ever looking for a deep dive into something, um, uh, you can go listen there. And so you'll hear more about Marco talking about the Mac Pro, but he wrote a really fascinating, um, pretty short essay that spells out exactly why uh, Apple made bad, they made a lot of bad decisions. And Apple, um, you know, tries to make about the Mac Pro about the Mac Pro. I'm sorry, the previous one. And uh, and Mar- Marco famously bought a Mac Pro. He was very excited about it when the new models came out, and then very quickly soured on it. Uh, and when the iMac came out with fantastically better specs, he was like, you know, he saw the numbers and he bought a iMac and um, sold his Mac Pro. And there are, there are literally several Twitter accounts that are like Marco's Mac Pro is like, dude, why'd you get rid of me? You know, people would set up his enough followers and uh, 
Oh, yeah, every time podcast. he talks about something that There's he some, bought, yeah. someone makes a Twitter account. Marco's for new it. car, Marco's old refrigerator, this, like, so, coffee maker. And yeah, Marco's Mac Pro account kicked around for a while, being very unhappy that Marco had gotten rid of him. Uh, so, he, so he, you know, he walks the talk. He walks the talk, as they say. But the, I think his. Uh, but the essay, I recommend if you're interested in insight into why Apple biffed this. It's you know he makes a great uh, set of arguments. You can read in depth, but it's it basically is they try to create the thing that was the most minimal possible outcome of a set of decisions for a pro user, and in the process, got rid of all of the specific things that any given kind of pro user needed. So instead of serving a broader audience with a uh, refined set of choices, which often like we could say laptops, even the iMac, the iMac uh, 5k iMac is fantastic because it uh, doesn't compromise. It doesn't have all kinds of extras and weird things. It's very um, uh, stripped down in some ways, but because it combines a 5k display, a high performance processor, uh, good GPU options, um, and you know, good interfaces, it's not like the, it's, it's not intended to be a pro machine, but it became one while it also remains affordable and viable for somebody who wants to buy a uh, higher end, more expensive desktop machine. So it's not like it's a $7,000 computer. It it remains viable for people who want like a machine they're going to use for five to seven years or maybe even longer. Um, and I, my in-laws bought a previous model of it when their machine went, um, you know, bad. They bought a 4k, I think, or a, well, but somewhere in there. And it was the right price for an all in one machine. So you could say the iMac succeeds in the minimalism, but Mac pro, like people like the Mac pro, it's fervent users because it was expandable and changeable and had just lots of empty space to do stuff in. And um, yeah, it was a tough thing. Like you probably couldn't put it on your desk unless you'd built your desk out of, you know, the strongest. Oh, jeez. Um, but, but that's okay. Like I just, you know, the, the, the design was perfect for what it needed to do. And so I don't know, like it's, it would be weird for Apple to bring something back, but then that's kind of what they did with the iPhone SE. They were like, oh, we're going to bring back the, you know, 5S design that was just a really great phone. And <laughs> I'm just um, <laughs> picture designers saying like, okay, we need to get this out by next year. And someone's like, screw it. We're just going to take the cheese grater design and throw a better board. And everyone's like, oh my God, you're so brilliant. Put a Thunderbolt could- 3 controller on it and push it out the door. They could do worse, is what I'm saying. No, they I really think that could. was the problem with the Mac, with the, the trash can Mac Pro problem. Was yeah. they did they did worse, right? They so, but I think Marco's point is like they bet on this two GPU design, a low heat output, like all these things. So this, and they also they missed Thunderbolt three, which is part of an Intel timeline. I mean, 2013 wasn't missing it; that was well ahead. But but like all of the things that are great right now in computing on some on Mac platform. Uh, some, uh, you know, a lot of them in the Windows side for performance, expandability, um, throughput, whatever. None of those are in the Mac Pro or can be in the current model. They can't revise the current model to really be good enough for any of that. Where the iMac, one assumes they will simply stick Thunderbolt 3 in and a faster processor on a, you know, an upgrade cycle. And suddenly you have a fantastically better machine. So the Mac Pro has to be completely Redesign, but you're right. I mean, this, yeah, his his main point's right. It was more expensive while removing features people wanted, and his thing too is that each kind of the, you know the Mac Pro doesn't have like one monolithic user base or one majority one. Um, they told uh, we know that Apple told the group of reporters they brought in to talk about the future of the Mac Pro, uh, and I misstated this and had to restate it a couple times. Developers aren't the majority of Mac Pro users; they're the or professional users. Sorry, they're the. Um, they're the plurality. So the largest single group of users who buys a um, in the professional category are developers. Mm-hmm. Or was it for – it wasn't just for Mac well, they Pro had, they had criteria <clears throat> for who they considered a pro and right. that was people who used pro apps like you know a certain amount or At least once frequency. a month. Well, they had like yeah. people who used it all the time. People used it at least – I think it was once a week used at least one pro app yeah. and then everybody else. It was and then like, of those people, developers were the largest group but not the majority which would be over 50 percent but right. you know, the, so yeah, the could, plurality. Is so they so. could be like 30 percent that and you know 25 percent uh, designers and 20 percent videographers photographers and or video editors and 15% photographers but they're also or the ones that aren't going away like designers kind of have a, you know a few more choices now um i roman and i have been spending the last week or so playing with the surface studio um which is microsoft's new it kind of looks like an imac cuz you can use it you know 
up in, in like iMac form. Um, and it's just a, it's a big, beautiful retina screen. It's got a keyboard and mouse. And then you can pull it down towards you and it's, uh, you know, a slanted kind of drafting desk sort of thing. And it's got a touchscreen and a dial and a pen. And so that's a lot of input devices, to be honest. But it was really interesting. And, you know, I hadn't had much experience with Windows 10. So that was, you know, both awkward and, and delightful at the same time. But the just the computer itself and like the way that it moved and, and the, the different ways you could interact with it really kind of ignited my imagination in a way, a, a, like new ways. Like I kept thinking of like I was just thinking different all day. Like I was thinking of funny things and weird things. And I, it was just I don't know. I felt different. Oh, that's so, cool. Yeah. So something about I think that they they should maybe do something really kind of wacky, but it's it would be. And and so, yeah, Roman and I are going to make a video talking about like, would Apple ever do this? Could they like what kind of changes they would have to make to do it? I don't think they're going to. None of us really think they're going to. It's a thought exercise because they're so right now. I mean, even when they had the reporters over to talk about the Mac Pro, I think they they like they joked about and kind of like made it like, a, oh, you just, you know, buy more devices. Like if you want a touchscreen, you buy an iPad Pro and, and there's software where you can use that as like a, a drawing slate for your, you know, iMac or MacBook Pro or whatever. Right. So they're, they're like, just buy more devices. We make <laughs> we make everything, you know, buy whatever mix of Apple products works for the way you work, which is, you know, it's a good solution. It's, um, but yeah, I don't know. This Surface Studio is, they're really onto something. Uh, in contrast, so I'd like to see uh, Apple, like, bring back the imagination, but not in like, the like, oh, we just made the computer, like, look really weird just so it can go on your desk. Uh, in contrast, I was helping a friend with a uh, design project yesterday. See, letterpress involves digital design, confusingly enough, because we make mm -hmm. some stuff on a computer, and then you output it to uh, printing plates. See, there's rubbery printing plates and um, <clears throat> at the service bureau. And um, anyway, so we're working on her machine, which is running, I think, Windows 10, but it's like a um, it's like a half – It's not a. it wasn't like a keyboard cover um, tablet. It was like a half – laptop half tablet thing i hadn't seen one before and so windows 10 is all the menu items are super tiny on screen and she was working very interactively between a touchpad and using the screen for zooming and i was i mean i was baffled and then we're using an adobe product which doesn't map the screen um interaction i think as well so we were trying to zoom out and it would move objects around in illustrator and i just you know and i the the keyboard the um the uh, trackpad had the same kind of split Mac has where if you have it set up this way, left is a click and right is a right click or a different kind of click. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I kept not being able to find the sweet spot to be far enough left. <laughs> oh, man. So we're, I was just like, oh my God. But I was watching her work interactively between the screen and the keyboard in a way that I've rarely seen anybody do before. And I realized, okay, this is a viable method, especially if you're working with graphical things and you are zooming in and out. It's much better. By the better. end of the day, I was trying to touch my MacBook Pro. Yeah, isn't that funny? By the end of the first day. Yeah, yeah. and I was close enough to it. I mean, I think... Or about it, my MacBook Pro screen, sorry. Yeah, I had to like do something. I was using it for hours and hours, and then I had to do something on my MacBook Pro screen, and my hand just went up, and it wasn't even oh, like slanted so to the right thing. Like My brain yeah, yeah. should have seen, like, that's a straight up and down screen. You don't touch that kind. But I wanted to. I that's wanted so to touch funny. it. You remap your brain really fast when something yeah. feels right. Is That's the thing. I've always felt that Apple, when they release new stuff and it's the right thing, they retrain our brain so we almost can't use the old thing because it's so right. It fits our brain like some, like a tool fits in the hand. Mm -hmm. So when they get it right, and so we feel it more with Apple when they get it wrong because they get it right so much of the time. So it's so much that's more a of a really disappointment. That's a really good point, yeah. yeah. And with other you platforms. You want it to be right all the time, but it kind of can't be. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, I think I've talked about, this is my most pretentious, I think I've talked about this on the podcast before, is I had this art, uh, art history teacher who talked about the, uh, the Venus of Willendorf, which is this um, small, like, uh, fertility object. It's like a rough carving of a, of a big-hipped woman, big-breasted woman. Oh, yeah. That's, and it's, it made an appearance on The Young Pope, HBO. Oh, is that right? It's recently. Yeah, one of, the, one of the cardinals had, like, a, an, an unhealthy <laughs> attraction to it. But continue. Go but ahead. It, he said it fits in the hand. It's designed to be held. It's a totem. <laughs> I so can you, see that. But you hold it, it has a certain heft. You know, I have this theory about the book. Like I'm doing this book. I think we make books because books fit our brain. We didn't we didn't invent a book and then backfill our brains to work with books. I think books are partly an outcome of our bodies and um, brains' ability to interpret language and that creation. So there's some kind of interactive 
thing there. And the same thing, I think Apple understands more intuitively than any company how technology fits our brain. So they produce a thing that our brain recognizes intuitively as what we should be doing, and then we adapt to it with almost no effort. So you know, if you go to Windows, I mean, I'm using the Windows platform, and I, I've been using Windows for decades, and I can use it. I'm like, oh, the tiny menu, I tapped, oh, just like everything feels frustrating to me unless I spent a lot of time again with it. And with Apple, you feel that record scratch. Like, oh, geez, they did. What are they doing there? Why is the Siri remote so bad? <laughs> Why is it so bad? Because they do everything else so well. Um, so read Marco Armin's Because they're like, if you don't essay. like it, just, you know, use your iPhone. Like, exactly. it's the, the other device problem. They're I know. Just it's like, like one of these devices has to work for you. Like, it's just true. pick a card, any card. It's true. Um, so, Mar- so read Marco's essay. Oh, so, I mean, one of his points I'll just make briefly, too, but you can read it, is that of all the different kinds of professional audiences, each of them needs a different thing. Some need a lot of CPUs that because the task is distributed. Some need like one super powerful CPU because the task cast can't be threaded or distributed. Some need like a ton of GPU power. Some need none. Some needs tons of memory. Some don't. So he's, he says the reason the Mac pro was so great before that is it could flexibly, flexibly accommodate that, especially by allowing aftermarket um, third-party GPU cards. And um, now that's the big thing, right? You know, go over to PCWorld.com, read our friend Gordon Ung. Oh, yeah. And Brad they Chakos just posted and another one. Other yeah. folks over there writing constantly about all the GPU and other options. And the, the I mean, it's the PC uh, customizing market and prefab market is the most exciting thing in hardware right now if you're into performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is a cry and shame that Apple – didn't stay up to that. So I'm assuming, as you are, that the next one is going to be um, much more user expandable, and it's going to have to be because it takes the burden off Apple. But I think they just got to this all-in-one hermetic environment thing, and it, and it, it bit them in well, a market. Well, they, they can still have that with the iMac. Um, I wonder yeah. if like it, it they'll try to do uh, – no, it has to be high-end. It has to be high-end. It it can't be it can't be a Mac Mini kind of thing. It has to be high end. No, although again, I think you could do a Mac Mini with um with stacking components. But I think the card the big thing is the card thing is people want to be able to stick a card mm-hmm. in a box. And if you can't stick a card in a box, um, Thunderbolt three is viable. We've talked earlier about um, other shows about uh, people are putting GPUs into PCI uh, Express enclosures. I think that are connected via because um, PCI Express is the native format or runs natively over Thunderbolt three. Mm-hmm. So you can just, if you have a Thunderbolt 3 connection, you can ostensibly run an external GPU. And it's possible that the solution, Apple may promote that as a solution for new Mac Pro, Pro instead of allowing internal cards. But I, I don't know. I think they need a cheese grater style thing again like you do. I think it would help. I really do. But we'll see. Um, got a bunch of, uh, a few uh, a few more little stories we can walk through here, stuff this week. Um, story had come out about... Uh, the Apple Watch, future Apple Watch, could help uh, monitor blood sugar levels, which plays into um, the thing that I think is exciting about wearables, especially something like the Apple Watch, is being able to help people with um, chronic or monitorable uh, health conditions uh, avert problems. And like one combination is machine learning, like being able to collect uh, vital statistics and detailed information from millions and millions of people. They can, uh, scientists can use machine learning to extract patterns that are otherwise invisible that would allow them to alert people in advance of a health problem using cues that would never be found by like a doctor as a diagnostician because the, the, cue, the clues and cues are too complicated. So, hey, you know, we have discovered what bubbled out of all this data is that if someone's blood sugar drops like this and their heart rate does this, they are 80% likely to have a stroke in the next, you know, 30 minutes and they should go to an ER immediately or they should call 911. I mean, that kind of thing is what we will learn in the future. So if you had a watch that can not only deliver that information for studies, but then track you with the same stuff and say like, your blood sugar is low, you're about to crash or, or we can predict in 20 minutes, you need to take an insulin shot now or, you know, call your doctor or whatever. That's going to be so fantastic. I'm so excited about that. Yeah, with machine learning and just giant data sets that, that they can get from you know having a lot of people wearing this and just constant monitoring and non-invasive monitoring. So they, the, the amount of data they would get would skyrocket. And then, yeah, they can say like they can put you into groups based on, you know, your age and all your other your health um, indicators and they, they can get super eerie with the predictions. So, um, 
And this is a big challenge that the whole industry has been working on. Um, uh, Christina Farrar's, uh, Christina Farr, I'm sorry, um, covers this beat for for CNBC. She does a really great job um, covering just health tech. Oh, yeah, and, she's terrific. Yeah, diabetes is like the new frontier for this. Um, there's there's a lot more patients and then there's, you know, fewer doctors and they're always looking for for ways to cut costs. And this kind of monitoring at home and, and using, um, you know, machine learning and AI to, to um, you know, alert people before they have a problem is, is going to be a huge game changer and change, save like billions of dollars. Yeah. And if you've already got a device you're wearing that does monitoring for conditions you don't have, they mm-hmm. catch the conditions before they become acute or chronic. And um, like I'm pre, pre-diabetic. My doctor has done some intervention for me because he's concerned that I could become pre-diabetic, which is then, you know, highly concerning about becoming actually diabetic. And so I'm just... And it's just, reversible. That kind of right. thing is, it's, it's very reversible if you catch it early enough and you like convince people that they need to make these lifestyle changes. And your watch could like coach you like day to day. It could say like, okay, look, you had a terrible day today, but like tomorrow you're going to do better. You know what oh. I mean? Like just the fact that you're wearing it every day could help people stick to like, you know, a plan and an you know an action plan and and check in and, and stay accountable um, in ways that just you know seeing a doctor every like six months to a year doesn't really do. And also being able to monitor blood sugar without having to do a pinprick would be. Yeah. A, I mean, even if it's coarse, like you probably still have to do a pinprick before you give yourself insulin. But just to be able to have a even if it's plus or minus five percent or ten percent or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a friend who's been testing for her insulin resistance, and she and she has found that. The pattern of food she eats because she's doing the pinprick tests after meals does not match all the conventional like advice. Everyone's biome and metabolism is slightly different. So yeah. being able to like, well, I just ate, you know, a meal of garbanzo beans and uh, one piece of pita bread and, um, you know, an unsweetened iced tea and my blood sugar went through the roof. And even though it shouldn't, but these things I'm apparently highly my particular, mm-hmm. you know, of uh, phenotype is uh, responsive, whatever. That would make a vast difference if you knew after you ate what your response was, just to yeah. be able to again to to eat uh, eat right for your insulin uh, resistance. So. And then if you log what you eat, you can kind of, you know, match that up against yeah, yeah. like your your phone could graph like different things for you and say like, okay, 12 hours after you ate just, that, you were hurting. No, just point Which your phone Which is what people do anyway, but it's just like a higher tech way to do that. So, I mean, Google's has been working. We've been hearing about this for a while, but they, they're working on a, a contact lens that can monitor your blood sugar through oh. um, through your tears, yeah, and so wow. so yeah, this is this is a big holy grail that tech companies are, are working on. <laughs> you have to cry though. You have to think of sad things for it to monitor your blood. No, I'm just kidding. Well, yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, this is like they they float on your on your tears all day. That's your that's very, lenses. very poetic. So, very poetic, um, Susie. Yeah, I hope that I hope that this happens because I mean, you know, there's people in my family with diabetes that I worry about. Um, and oh, and the other thing is, it doesn't necessarily have to be. Um, so we're always thinking of like what new sensors they're going to add to the watch. But uh, keep in mind that Apple has also worked on um, like smart bands and we haven't really seen them hit hit the market yet. But um, they're working on on patents and connectors and things so like they could maybe put the sensor in the band. And that way, um, if you didn't <laughs> need it all the time, it wouldn't be like, you know, another expensive sensor in the watch itself. So there mm-hmm. could be or they could you know, split it up and do like a series to series three thing where the series three watches have the special new sensor or the, you know, they, they could try to put it in the band, do like a smart band that had the sensor built in. I dig all of those things. Cause I think it'll be, um, I think it's just, there's like personal happiness, personal health, and also overall economic productivity. We can all be happier and less stressed out if we, uh, if our health is more under control without us having to constantly worry about it. But, um, there you go. Uh, let's see. So a few other things this week. Um, we have uh, heard that Apple has received a permit in California to test self-driving cars. So we still don't know what exactly they're doing. Obviously, we know uh, there was the, the information leaked that they uh, uh, laid off people from a division, kind of reassigned folks. But um, we are suspect, we're suspecting they're continuing to work on uh, software that we related to self-driving cars. And this just seems like if they're going to be doing that, they will obviously need permission to drive self-driving cars in California to test the stuff they're doing. So um, 
Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, I mean, so, yeah, we we actually see them in San Francisco kind of a lot now. I see the Uber one, which isn't picking up fares anymore. They got in trouble for picking up fares. Oh, yeah. Um, but And then the, they, like, banished all the cars to, like, Arizona. But now they're back, but they're just testing um, and not picking up fares. Um, so that's what kind of permit Apple is getting is for the testing. They're using the same kind of, like, Lexus little SUV, I think, that um, – some of the other companies are using. So it's not like we're not seeing Apple, you know, cars with a little Apple logo that kind of looks like an iPod on wheels. Like we're not <laughs> seeing that. That's not, that doesn't exist yet. So um, and and they have a driver who sits behind the wheel. Um, so, you know, they have a steering wheel. It's like a normal car, but it's being driven by software. So. Yeah, that's really interesting. Like they could just be doing software for other people's cars or maybe they will eventually be making a car of their own. It makes sense for them to continue development and put – I mean with as much money as they have in the bank, they should be spending – and they do spend many, many billions of dollars on things that may never come to light. But they need to be on top of them because it could suddenly be the product that's the future of the company if they weren't Mm -hmm. paying attention. And I think that you know that's the difference between Apple and uh, let's say Research in Motion or BlackBerry is that um, Apple has uh, – ironic since blackberry was a canadian company or is a canadian company apple skates <laughs> and to- now apple's stealing their self-driving car no i was thinking it was their uh, skating to where the puck will be as opposed to uh yeah where the puck is yeah um, i mean if you like go back to before too. the phone no one knew that that was going to be you know the cornerstone of apple's business in in the next 10 years or whatever so yeah cars cars could be that new thing or diabetes or both right and they also <laughs> a I think, car that monitors your blood sugar that'd be fine uh there's and also it the, just drives you to the hospital the ipad um as we've said is ipad is an incredibly successful profitable business that would be great if it were a company on its own uh, it would be of great concern because of sales issues, but uh, like declining sales and growth and so forth. But in terms of a profit center for Apple, it's incredible. They created a business and then it turned out it is not the business. It is not an iPhone business, right? But it still contributes billions of dollars to the bottom mm-hmm. line, is part of a product matrix, makes people happy. It's a very a product people are very satisfied with. Um, and if they just sat in their lawyers, they could say, we're a phone company. Nobody needs a – who would need a phone bigger than 4.7 inches? Nobody. And I'm sure they've who. learned a lot from making the iPad that they want yeah, yeah. you know put back into the phone. That's what we that's what we hear. Um, so uh, another story I wanted to I want to bring up because I'm just starting to see a, a bunch of this happening. Um, uh, Backblaze is a hosted uh, cloud backup company, and it's the one that I prefer at the moment uh, for a variety of reasons, including um, uh, just their model of um, well, a it's reliable, and I've had problems with other backup services, and, um, and b I just I kind of like the uh, place they've carved out. Um, I have some issues about some of the cryptographic choices they made, but it's it's not that it's insecure. It's more that I think they wind up taking too much risk in terms of uh, even though they don't see a key, having it transferred, it gets complicated. But anyway, a Backblaze has a cloud-based service that's uh, called B2. That's like Amazon's S3, Google Cloud, and so forth, where you can use uh, data on demand. So you pay for um, sometimes for transfers in or out, you pay for requests if you're, you know, so you could serve up objects from the cloud and you would pay per, uh, you know, a tiny amount per 100,000 requests or 1,000 requests, and then you pay a monthly storage fee. So if you need a terabyte for a month, that's great. Um, if you want to store 100 gigabytes for a year, it's great, whatever. But um, those cloud service prices have been coming slowly down and they're pretty inexpensive now, but people are also creating more and more data. So, you know, an average person, if they take a reasonable number of photographs, could be uh, needing to store, you know, 100 gigabytes online and that can be expensive on demand. So you go to services like Backblaze that have flat rate pricing and um, there's a... uh, Amazon uh, has its cloud drive. Um, there's uh, Google Drive and other ones that have a combination of uh, flat rate or you know Dropbox even has a terabyte flavor now that I think is $10 a month, which um, is pretty good as a combination of service and storage. So I've got like hundreds or gigabytes or terabytes all over the net that I don't use because I need the service, not the storage. And um, what I'm seeing is there's a rise of software for Mac OS that's going to take advantage of that. And uh, I just wrote a review for Macworld of ARC, A-R-Q, which is, um, it's sort of a, it's a backup product, I guess you'd say. It is really a backup product. It lets you uh, kind of run your own backup system, like either locally, so you can can copy and sync to local sources like network drives or external drives um, uh, over SFTP and so forth. But you can also back up to uh, both um, Google uh, Cloud Drive, the the per usage one, but also Google Drive, which is... um, 
you know, tied into Google's cheaper uh, flat rate storage and to Amazon uh, Cloud Drive, which you pay one yearly fee. It's like, I think it's $60 a year and you have unlimited storage. So you can store terabytes there, but there wasn't that much software that would use it as a backup destination. Ah. So, um, yeah. So ARC, ARQ, very interesting. And ARC lets you control all of the encryption. So if you have wanted to not let any other party ever have your encryption key in any fashion, ARC encrypts everything that you're doing before it sends it off to a cloud service or even to local drives. And then it retrieves the encrypted data and only decrypts locally. So it's the best option for people who want to have the most control. Um, But also if you're already paying for a service that has unlimited storage or like me, I've got a terabyte at Dropbox and I'm using like 50 gigabytes or something I can be using, I can set up a backup folder that I don't sync to my machines because there's a selective sync option in Dropbox uh, which is going to get better. Um, they're adding an option that will improve that. But um, I can choose opt out on my Macs to not uh, sync a backup folder. And then I can use ARC to use that 950 gigs of unused, unused storage to backup files. Um, I've looked at Chrono, uh, ChronoSync from Econ Technologies recently, which backs up. Also, it can sync locally and whatever, but also to some paid cloud services or per usage. Uh, Transmit3, uh, the folks at Panic released a screen capture recently showing that they're going to be supporting a greater variety of cloud services. Um, so Backblaze is – Very be- cool. Yeah. I just like the control. So Backblaze, Backblaze has this B2 service. They just dropped their price by 60%. Um, and so they're actually now cheaper than Amazon and some of the other cloud services, which is kind of amazing. Um, and with these Mac tools that let you back up, you know, this, the reason people went to flat rate backup services like CrashPlan and Backblaze and others, um, where you're paying, you know, typically a few dollars a month, maybe $5 a month or less with a yearly discount was because, you know, we didn't want to pay $50, $60 a month for our data, right? To store it somewhere. And then it was a pain to manage. So this, kind of flip over is going to make it more reasonable for people who are more advanced Mac users to choose their own backup options and totally control the encryption end to end um, as well. And they don't have to worry about somebody else gaining access and being able to decrypt their files stored in some cloud. So that's a trend I'm watching. And when Transmit 3 comes out, I'm sure we'll have more about that because I can look at the, the cloud options across multiple packages that you can use in a Mac. Yeah, sounds like some how-tos should be coming soon to... Yeah, it's a whole uh, – it keeps changing because storage gets cheaper. On, it's not um, exponentially cheaper, but it gets cheaper along a pretty fast declining scale. Um, so cloud storage was kind of not unaffordable but reasonable. But then you know. part of what you're paying when you you know, you know pay for a backup service is like you know how nice its software is and how easy it makes Absolutely. it and how automatic. So even though like we know you can do all kinds of like – cloning and kind of roll your own with with the stuff and and it sounds like it's getting easier um you know it's 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 still sort of the realm of power users but i think it's it's going to be more accessible it yeah it's like with this these new tools it's climbing down it's like like i say arc is not arc, like chrono chrono sync is for an advanced user it's very mm-hmm. good but it has so many options and yeah. setting up exactly what you want i think if you're an advanced user you'll have no trouble with it but somebody who is not doesn't know all the settings and it's not their thing, they're going to have trouble. And ARC is really like, okay, what files do you want to back up? What's your destination? Click schedule and now you're done and walk away forever. And that's, that's kind of cool. That's what I want. Yeah. So it requires a little bit of tweaky and you have to understand what the encryption key is about and store it safely and so forth. But it's it's a relatively lower burden. Um, and it's not to talk down Chronosync. Chronosync is an amazing piece of software. It's so sophisticated. ARC has got a much more focused mission uh, as a backup tool. Um, but speaking, you know, we started off this podcast. I was flashing back to the past. Um, have you you've seen this? I'm sure the Internet Archive has this amazing thing. You saw this, right? You can, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. Incredible. We covered it yesterday. It's awesome. Yeah, we got the MacWorld story off about it. It's um, you can like run classic games, but also classic software on, yeah, on Mac, Mac Pain emu- and Mac Ride. Yeah, and if Mac you miss those, emulators you, they're back. In, in the browser. So I somebody I saw this on Twitter. I'm using TweetBot. I click on the link and I bring up the emulator in the mini browser inside of TweetBot. I'm running, <laughs> you know, Mac. I'm running Dark Castle, um, which gives me flashbacks because I started playing Dark Castle my uh, uh, freshman year in college. Someone gave me a copy, probably copy protected, broken. I think during we had a, a reading week between end of classes and finals week. Had reading week, right? And you finish your papers and whatever. And then you took finals the next week. Reading week, I got this. I played it for a week solid. I almost flunked out. It was terrible. Oh, yeah. No, that's that what... happened to me. I didn't even have a Mac, but one of my friends did, oh, Jay. Oh, no, no. And he Jay. had that game Snood. Remember Snood? Where oh, you yeah. fire the little heads at the other heads? 
I played Snood like nonstop. Oh my god! This is when I decided I really on couldn't play video games. Someone else's Mac. Like how rude, right? You're oh just in the room. Nope, Jay. You can't sleep, Jay. I got to play this <laughs> some more. He was such a sweetheart. Love you, Jay. Uh, boy. Um, yeah. So you can play those old games and relive the past. But um, I was trying to give Rich Siegel, the uh, head of Bare Bones, a hard time about like, hey. Yeah, BB edit running on this, and, so, <laughs> and James Thompson of uh, Peacock. Peacock, yeah. yeah. He said, "No, he said, uh, <laughs> he said, Peacock? there's already a version of. You just look in there. BB edit's already running on one of these emulators." I'm like, "Oh, I just trying to be funny." And there you go. So if you miss Is the Peacock days of though? system, we... uh, system six and seven, uh, or uh, Mac OS uh, eight and nine, I think I forget how late they run. I, I got to wonder about. There's issues. Must be about copyright, but I, it hasn't been taken down yet. And it's um, but it's emulation because they've got the. ROMs embedded there. But it is also hilarious because you remember how long it took to boot those machines. And I'm like, like mm-hmm. I said, I'm in a mini browser on an iPhone and it's like, it's like boop, 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 bing, and it's up. And I'm like, oh my God, I would have killed for a Mac that ran this fast, you know? Yeah. And instead it's in a tiny, tiny window in my tiny, tiny supercomputer. Um, so go have some fun, folks. Um, the controls are weird. I, I started to play Jar Castle. I'm like, and I couldn't remember any of the controls. I didn't read the help. And I started playing it. I'm like, oh my God, I'm just going to, I'm going to waste my life again. So. I put it down. I, I I got to the kill screen, okay? When I was playing it originally, I don't need to do that again. <laughs> nice. A couple security stories before we're out here. Um, we'll be done. Uh, uh, interesting little side note. Um, the, the example was used was Apple.com, which is why I bring it up. There's been a problem for many years with the support of non-Roman characters or non like the non-ASCII character set in URL names, like domain names rather. Uh, and uh, the register ran this story about it still being an issue 12 years after it was kind of thought of as a real problem that should be solved. Uh, called, it's a homograph attack, which is uh, letters that look alike. So because, um, you know, the, there's like, a Donald Trump account on Twitter where, you know, how is Donald Trump's account is like real Donald Trump. Someone oh, has like real Donald Trump where the L and real is really the number one. But right. it looks almost the same. That is that kind of thing. And, you and can, then they tweet like horrible things and everyone's like retweeting them to be like, I can't believe they tweeted that. And it's just like, no, look a little closer. It's a parody account. Like, it's not it, a I'm, verified account. Yeah, I yeah. hate that. And this is the kind of, that kind of thing except for like phishing and attacks is you can go to a domain. It looks in your browser like apple.com and the A is like a Cyrillic A or it's – but it, they find letters in other alphabets and there's a system called Punicode that represents – these non-Roman characters um, in a complicated way and the browser makes them nice. Uh, and I think I might write a, I don't know if I'll write a private icon, but if I'll write something about how to disable it. I think every browser still has a way where you can, If you, and the problem is if you are working regularly, if you're a, a non-English speaker or speak uh, languages other than English that use non-Roman characters, you're going to domains and clicking on links that have, that are represented in Punicode and have, you know, diacriticals and, uh, you know, non-English alphabets and so forth. So it's a pain for you. If you never go or you very, very rarely go to sites that aren't named in with Roman characters in the domain, not just the URL, um, there's ways to disable puny code rewriting and it'll show you the long, like it starts like XN dash dash, like this whole system that's used to kind of hide it. Um, so it presents correctly. Um, so I'll, maybe I'll write up that, but this register article talks about it a bit too. It's kind of a failure of the, uh, international set of agencies that try to um, keep all the policies correct for domains and uh, the W3C and the ICON and all these other groups. Um, it's just not great for users. And I mean, I remember, I think some, I remember writing about an attack like 10 years ago where someone had registered a paypal.com lookalike domain that was a homograph attack and was fishing people with it because no normal person would look at it and know that that was not a Roman mm-hmm. A, right? Yeah. So still a problem. Um, I got this great question from a reader that I answered in a column about password managers and the concern about storing passwords centrally. And so I wrote a whole column about how uh, LastPass and 1Password, the way in which uh, what 1Password has an option to store centrally with a subscription part of their service and LastPass always stores centrally. People are concerned after some recent LastPass attacks about whether their data was safe. And I kind of wrote up like why – the basic security model is really good. Um, LastPass has had a lot of attacks against them, but most of them are theoretical um, and are or not theoretical. They're not found in the wild. They were flaws and they were with the, um, in their browser plugins. So if someone had to get you to go to a malicious page 
that target LastPass users and you had to have something valuable and blah, blah, blah. So not exactly as bad as it sounded, but, you know, and they've been fixing these as people have discovered them. So there's no evidence they were ever exploited. So if you're concerned about central storage of passwords, uh, a lot of security experts say using a, a one password to LastPass or similar software that's well-designed and has a clever encryption options so other people can't gain access to your passwords, even if they get access to your password store through a central service, they would still be unable to decrypt them. This is much better because it lets you create a unique, strong password for every site you visit, which makes it less likely that a password breach at one site would allow a, a criminal to reuse a password they discovered um, in one place against you somewhere else. Um, this reminds me too, remember the Turkish crime family story of a couple of weeks ago, the folks who claim to uh, have breached uh, iCloud and had gotten hundreds of millions. Yes. Of so they, I think April 8th was the day they were supposed to unleash hell and nothing happened because as uh, most security experts believed, uh, Apple hadn't suffered a breach that um, a Turkish crime family had found credentials in previous breaches at other sites where people had registered with a you know iMac or iCloud address and they'd reused a password and they tested mm -hmm. those to find people who hadn't changed their password since previous breaches and I've reused it. So that was a suspicion. And so far, that's what it seems to be. And finally, this is your story, Susie. I want you to I want you to take it. How many <laughs> phones, how many phones can a man run down before <laughs> you call him a criminal? Before so you call the cops. <laughs> yeah, a guy got busted at Coachella um, with 100 phones, stolen phones, phone thief. But they used Find My iPhone to nab him. So just a little uh, tip, everyone. Turn on Find, find My iPhone. And um, if you're in a family group with your family, um, you find my iPhone will also find their iPhones. So that might be how these guys um, grabbed them so quickly. Uh, the articles didn't really go into it um, that much. But the people whose phones got stolen all noticed because, you you know, you're, you're reaching for your phone kind of frequently at a, at a festival setting. Um, and they were like, oh, my gosh, our iPhones are gone. So they jumped on find my iPhone and... Um, found found this guy and like could like wow there's a guy with backpack and 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 everyone's you know multiple accounts say like my phone's maybe in that backpack he was still at the festival so they followed him they alerted security security was able to detain him until the cops came and when he was arrested he had a backpack with a hundred phones so if well, you... i would steal 100 phones <laughs> and i would steal 100 more yeah, which I mean, like, not seems silly because with activation lock and stuff now, like, you know, stealing a phone. But anyway, um, those are all at Lost and Found. So if you happen to be at Coachella and had your phone stolen by this uh, a hole, um, you uh, they have their Lost and Found online too. So if you didn't go to Coachella but you just want to see all the hilarious stuff people lost at Coachella, um, that's worth a few clicks. I've discovered in researching a story a few weeks ago that even if you have activation lock on, there are ways to to refresh to wipe the phone and make yeah, it Yeah, but this guy was clearly an idiot. He hadn't even turned him off yet. No, or his backpack wasn't lined with lead or something or aluminum foil or anything. You know, yeah, you could have had a Faraday cage like on his back, right? Wait, shh, we shouldn't have told anybody. Now they're all, all of our, all of our thieving listeners. And that's are... the problem. Coachella has two weekends. So, <laughs> oh, yeah. so yeah, tips watch for out. the people going to Coachella, turn on, find my iPhone, watch out for your iPhones and then tips for, you know, would be iPhone thieves, Faraday oh. cage backpack. Let's go tips. That's You're what welcome. we like. We like to help everybody. Yeah. You know, service, service journalism. Uh, I just am picturing like this, like, I, like, um, you know, that scene in the thing where they're, uh, they find the spaceship under the ice. Do you know this scene? Classic John Carpenter movie. Now it's a uh, so the scientists see a, a form under the ground and they start to kind of walk around the perimeter and then there's a shot. I think it's from above showing the scientists in a circle around this thing in the ice, this ship. And I'm thinking, I want to see that in the Coachella thing where like people all would find their iPhone and another phone and they're all sort of walking around. They form this circle around this guy and they get closer and closer to the guy in the middle. They're like, that's him. Um, that's him. Then we can have a, a, a body snatcher style uh, Donald Sutherland uh, pointing at them and. I mean, great. it's only like an hour or two from Los Angeles, so I have to imagine that someone's already purchased the movie rights to this whole thing. <laughs> um, it was great. The guy was arrested. He's out on bail. The um, man but, with a hundred iPhones. But they have a picture of like all you know, a hundred phones lined up. So he's 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 kind of going to be able to just explain that. I'm, I'm laughing, but it's terrible. It's like it's also like that's yeah. like a hundred. It's what, no fun. What a hundred times? Uh, you know, six hundred bucks. I mean, it's like sixty thousand dollars of the phones he stole somewhere yeah. in that range. 
Well, don't kids don't do drugs. Don't. Steal what phones. if there was like a festival mode on your phone or whatever, where <laughs> it, like your i your Apple Watch and iPhone like beep when they get too far apart, and you need to like punch in your passcode if you're going to turn it off. Like, what if there's like special like a special high security mode for if you're going to be oh. in like a crowded situation like that, if you're traveling or if you're at a music festival, a conference, some kind of big event could because like things happen and Apple has taken steps to code in things to its software and operating systems that make phones less attractive to steal, easier to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe iOS 11 will we'll take a few more steps in that direction. Well, but I think it would be cool if there was like a special mode where it was super, super secure. And then once you got back to, you know, your home and you're on your own iPhone, Wi-Fi network, you're, you know, Bluetooth connected to your own Apple TV. It could be like, oh, we're safe now. I'm going to turn all that off. I take that. You could do it with geofencing. They could add an mm-hmm. option that would uh, more, that would tr- you could set a geofence for an event. And if it went past that, it would send you email. It would text somebody else. It would um, do whatever. I, I really do like the idea that you couldn't turn an iPhone off without a code. That it would, ha- that it would be locked on. Yeah, like just sometimes. You'd have to punch right. in your passcode just to, to turn it off. You could set, if you set it in that mode where it's like for the next five hours, I want to have to use a code to turn it off. Because there are times when it crashes and you want to do the, um, the trick to uh, boot it, or maybe you'd have to do, you know, plug it into a Mac and enter the code into the Mac to reboot. Oh, but, yeah, there's always like that force force reset thing. But they could disable that. I mean, I don't know how yeah. deeply hardware wired it is, but I just like the idea that you could not get off a uh, network, that you'd actually have to wrap the phone in aluminum foil to, or something. And even that doesn't necessarily work. Um, well, I think we've uh, I think we've run down, speaking of running down. And then the, the tethering it from oh, yeah. your watch to your phone where they would like buzz if they got too far apart that could even help if you were gonna like you know if you left your phone at your tent while you were like gonna gonna walk you know over to the concert field like you would know and then you wouldn't have to walk like two miles back to your tent just to get your phone i just want not that i've been there i want painful (laughs) electric shocks to come out of the phone that's all i want is that so wrong i mean i use my watch to find my phone like all the time still painful electric shocks just think about it Folks, you can find but if us. Only if they, like they that's you know, they give you painful electric shocks to tell you what your blood sugar is. There we go. That's that would work. So, so you get your or heart you're res- about to eat ice cream and it's just like zzz, get your don't heart do restarted. That. Your blood sugar is too high. There's a plot point in Get Out I won't reveal that involves a, a aversion to cigarettes and uh, they could have done that with an Apple Watch. Um so folks, you know what? You can find us at painfulelectricshocks.com. I mean uh, macworld.com and uh, also find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash more, more slash brain breaking, <laughs> facebook.com slash Macworld. Um, we're at Macworld on Twitter, where you can also find Susie at SF Suze, S-F-S-O-O-Z like Z. I'm at Glenn F, G-L-E-N-N-F like Frank. Um, you can email us, Mac, uh, sorry, uh, podcast at podcast singular at Macworld.com. If you have Mac 911 questions, it's Mac 911 at Macworld.com. And Susie, great to talk to you again. You too, Glenn. See you next week. A pleasure. And uh, we'll be back. As she said, this has been the Mac World Podcast, episode 555 for April 19th, 2017. And uh, we'll talk to you again next week.